After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a child of peace is there, your peace will rest upon them. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it would be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, you will be exalted to heaven. You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to our little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The word of the Lord. There's a difference between believing that something is true and experiencing it as real. So for instance, I, I read a story once about uh, an orphan who was adopted out of a situation of extreme poverty, of, of starvation, where he never had enough food. And even though in his new home, every day the meals would come, they would come regularly and there was always enough food. At, at every single one of those meals, the child would, would take food and hide it in his pockets or wrap it up in a napkin. And when his parents found out, they went to the child and they said, sweetheart, why are you doing this? Don't you know that there's always gonna be enough food from now on? You see, the poor kid 
believed, he knew that it was true that when the time came for the next meal, that there was going to be food there, but it wasn't real to him. There's a difference between believing that something is true and experiencing it as real. Uh, The same thing happens with God. Uh, You know, we can believe it's true that God exists, that God cares about us in the world, but it's not real to us. The things that feel more real to us are all the daily demands of our lives, the pressures of our lives, um, our work, our schoolwork, our um, bills, our relationships, our family, the dishes, the diapers, things like that. You know, and um, also all the things that are going on in our world, like politics or the climate or culture, those are the things that feel real to us. And, you know, social media exacerbates this. Some people call it digital anxiety. That's like, you know, when something blows up on your Facebook or Twitter feed or something's dominating the latest news cycle, that's what feels real to us. And it just makes us anxious. So Jesus is saying that there is a, a real world, that this world is real, but, but there's a world beyond this world. It's called the kingdom of God, and it's infinitely more real than anything else. That there is a world beyond this world, and we long for that world. People are spiritually thirsty for that world. So even though we live in a modern scientific world, a secular world, where people say, you know what, faith is private, you should keep that to yourself, you should never bring that into public, nonetheless, Um, alternative forms of spirituality are springing up all over the place. People are thirsty, spiritually thirsty for a world beyond this world. Jesus is saying that there is a world beyond this world. It's called the kingdom of God. And it's infinitely more real than anything else out there. That, um, that, That the kingdom of God, compared to the kingdom of God, this world that we live in is like a dream world. It's the make believe world. And that waking up to the kingdom of God is like waking up to ultimate reality. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. Now, what does that mean? Um, We're in a series on a section in the Gospel of Luke that's known as the travel narrative or the journey to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. And as he's going along this journey, he invites others to go along with him and he teaches them what it means to follow him. In this passage, Jesus is teaching us what it means to make the kingdom of God real to people. Not just believed in as true, but experienced as real. What does that mean? How does that happen? Jesus teaches us three things in this passage. Uh, he teaches us about uh, the mission of the kingdom. He teaches us about the experience of the kingdom. And lastly, he shows us the joy of the kingdom, okay? The mission, the experience, and the joy of the kingdom. So first, uh, the mission of the kingdom. At the very beginning of this passage, you notice um, Jesus appoints 72 people uh, who are following him. And in verse 3, he says, go, I am sending you. Now, we may not realize it, but this is amazing. Why? If you read the historical gospel accounts of Jesus's life, uh, all of them point out that Jesus did three main things in his ministry. He proclaimed the gospel, he healed the sick, and he cast out demons. So proclaiming the gospel, that's speaking words of truth, confronting false beliefs, or healing the sick, that's bringing wholeness and renewal to people's bodies and minds. Or casting out demons, that's, um, that, that's, that's bringing liberation 
to people from um, the evil forces that enslave them and oppress them. Those were the three things that Jesus did, proclaiming the gospel, healing the sick, and casting out demons. Now, one chapter before this, in chapter 9, you see Jesus, he calls the 12 disciples, you know, the, the famous guys, Peter, James, John, and the others, and he tells them to go out and do the same three things, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. And we think, oh, right, that makes sense, the 12 apostles, They're the leaders of the church, you know, otherwise known as professional ministry people. It's their job to go out into the world and do ministry. But here in this passage, Jesus appoints 72 people and he sends them out to do the same three things. So in verse 9, you find out they were proclaiming the gospel. They were healing the sick. In verse 17, we find out that they were casting out demons The same three things Jesus did, the same three things that the 12 apostles did, here Jesus is sending out 72 others to do the same exact thing. This means, friends, that that ministry, that the mission of the kingdom is not something that's just for a few specialists who are called into like full-time professional ministry. It's everyone, including you. That means that Jesus turns ministry consumers into ministry providers. That that when Jesus calls you into a relationship with himself, he always ends up sending you back out into the world to participate in the mission of his kingdom. Now, here's the question. What is the kingdom? Jesus was constantly talking about the kingdom of God. What does that mean? You know, when we hear that phrase, kingdom of God, that can mean different things to different people. Some of you, you might hear that and it just sounds kind of mythological, like a fantasy novel. Others of you, especially in our age of social consciousness and human rights, you know, talk about kings and kingdoms might sound oppressive to you. But to an ancient Jewish person, this would have meant something completely different. To understand the kingdom of God, we have to understand the basic biblical storyline. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The whole world was a place of goodness and beauty and perfection. And the spiritual and the physical were one perfect union. But as a result of of human rebellion against God, the whole world is falling apart. And an important component in the biblical storyline is that that rebellion by humans was the result of an attack by supernatural spiritual forces of evil. In other words, Satan, the devil. And I understand some of you might think, come on, you know, we're modern scientific people. You don't really expect me to believe all that superstitious baloney. But let me ask you a question. Um, Have you ever wondered why we experience this world as a place of evil? Where did we even get that idea of evil? Because if there is no God and this world is all there is, then by definition, this world is already exactly the way it's supposed to be. And yet we know this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Where did we get that idea? How do we know that evil is real? Because if evil is not real, then all of our talk about human rights and justice and individual dignity, that's the superstition. But Jesus was constantly talking about, teaching about the reality of of supernatural forces of, of evil and darkness in this world. So for instance, in verses 18 and 19, you see Jesus, he's talking about the defeat of Satan. 
and how he gives his followers authority and protection over supernatural forces of evil, which is represented symbolically by serpents and scorpions. You see, because of the attack of supernatural evil forces in this world, the whole world is falling apart. It's like a tear or a rip was made in the fabric of creation. Instead of being one perfect union, the spiritual and the physical have been torn apart. But throughout the Bible, over and over again, God promises that one day he's going to bring everything back together again. And the way he's going to do that is through a king, but a good king a perfect king, the Messiah, the Christ. So that when Jesus Christ came to earth and and was proclaiming the kingdom of God is near, any Jewish person who heard that, man, like bells would have been going off in, in their mind, like ding, 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 the king has come. The defeat of evil has come. It's it's the healing of the world. It's the restoration of all things. It's the reunification of the spiritual and the physical. Everything sad is coming untrue. For instance, that's why in verse 5, you notice Jesus says that whenever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Peace, you know, in the Bible, peace is the word shalom. That's a word that means a lot more than just the end of conflict. It means wholeness. You can, you can have the end of conflict, but still not have wholeness. For instance, if, you know, when two people stop fighting, their relationship could still be shattered. Or if two countries stop dropping bombs on each other, their cities could still be devastated. There's no shalom because there's no restoration. Shalom, peace, it means wholeness, flourishing, well-being in every area of your life. Not just spiritual, but, but um, emotional and psychological or social and relational or um, even physical and structural and, and communal. It's the restoration of all things. It's the reweaving of the whole fabric of creation. That is the kingdom of God. Shalom, peace, wholeness, the whole fabric of creation gets woven back together again. And that is the mission into which Jesus sends every single one of his followers, including you. Now that leads to our second point. We've just talked about the mission of the kingdom. But secondly, Jesus teaches us about the experience of the kingdom. Because remember, you can believe that something is true, but there's a difference between knowing that something is true and experiencing it as real. To participate in the mission of the kingdom is is to make it real to other people. So how does that happen? Well, let's go back to those three things that we were talking about. Remember, um, Jesus does three big things. He proclaims the gospel. That's words of truth. That's confronting false beliefs. Uh, Jesus heals the sick. That's caring for people, bearing their burdens. It means being for them, being there for them when they're sick or hurting or afraid. Um, It also means casting out demons. Now, I understand that might sound a little weird, a little freaky to us. But at the very least, um, that means recognizing that this world is more than what can be measured scientifically. It means um, that there are supernatural forces, spiritual forces at work in this world, and some of them are evil. And it means bringing liberation or freedom to people who are enslaved by these evil forces. And that's not just spiritual, but they could be political or economic. They could be psychological or emotional forces of evil. Now, here's what I want us to think about. When we say those three things, preach the gospel, heal the sick, 
cast out demons. It can sound kind of mechanical. You know, if you just say it like that, it sounds a little transactional, kind of impersonal. But when it's actually happening, there's nothing more deeply personal, relational, intimate, and involved. So for instance, back in chapter 8 of Luke, um, we're introduced to Mary, who was called Magdalene. And, and we're told that seven demons went out of her, that Jesus uh, cast seven demons out of her. Now, imagine what that experience would have been like for her. You, you've been suffering your whole life. Everybody you know thinks that you're crazy or evil or both. It, your life is nothing but constant torment, day and night, year after year. But then you meet someone named Jesus, and we don't know what happened. Did he say a word? Did he touch her? We don't know. But she had an encounter with Jesus, and it transformed her life from that point on. There's nothing more deeply intimate and relational and personal than that. And understand, you know, Mary, as a Jewish person, she would have grown up all her life knowing intellectually about the kingdom of God. But, but when she met Jesus, the kingdom became real to her. All of a sudden, it was like there was an imprint that was made. An indelible mark was made upon her heart, upon her life. There was an imprint that was there. It's kind of like photography. You know, back before the age of digital cameras, the way you got a photograph is you have a piece of film, and the film is treated with a chemical. And then you put the film in the camera, and then when you click the shutter open, it allows a, a burst of light to shoot into the darkness of the camera. And then when it hits the film, uh, an imprint is made. An indelible mark, an indelible image, an imprint is made on the film of the camera. In order for that to happen to human beings, it, it can never just be simply intellectual. It has to be more than mere information. If, if human hearts are like that camera film, then the light that imprints the heart is an emotionally weighted experience. It's emotionally charged. That's how things become real to human beings. That's how people change. So for instance, I was re-watching the movie Inception recently. It's about a group of thieves who break into people's dreams and they steal ideas. But this time, uh, they have to break into someone's subconscious in order to plant an idea, inception. But because planting an idea is way harder than stealing idea, um, they have to have a team meeting to say, okay, how are we actually going to do this? And the leader of the team is played by Leo DiCaprio. <laughs> I didn't know if I needed to say his last name. But Leonardo, he's the leader of the team meeting, and he says this. Um, he says, we need to plant this idea deep in his subconscious. The subconscious is motivated by emotion, not reason. We need to find a way to translate this idea into an emotional concept, but it has to be positive because a positive emotion trumps a negative emotion every time. People yearn for reconciliation, for catharsis. He says that we have to, to get this guy to have a positive emotional reaction to everything that happens to him. Now, we might say, look, this is just a movie. And the answer is, yeah, that's true. But you know what? Science seems to support this idea. For instance, attachment theory says that the way children bond with their parents is emotionally and that it happens through the face. That when that when you look into the face of someone you love and who loves you, an imprint is made. An indelible mark is made upon the, on the heart, imprint. So 
it's kind of like, I remember when I was a kid one summer and we were visiting my grandparents in Ohio. And that summer, I swallowed too much water in the lake and got really sick. And so I was laying on the couch. I, I couldn't keep anything down. I was miserable. And, and my grandfather came over. And my grandfather was not necessarily the most emotionally expressive man. But he came over and he sat on the edge of the couch. And, and he looked at me with such affection in his eyes. It actually made me a little uncomfortable. And, and you know how that feeling? Um, and, and then he just smiled at me and he said to me, I love you so much. You know, that was decades ago. I still see it like it was yesterday. My grandfather imprinted me with his love. Friends, that is exactly what Jesus is calling us to go out and do in the lives of other people, to imprint with God's love on them. That is an emotionally rich, an emotionally laden experience. It's deeply personal and intimate and relational and involved. That when we go out and we do this in the lives of the others, it means being for people. That means being available for them when they're going through something traumatic or even maybe just, you know, hanging out around the kitchen table with them on a regular basis because that's where all the deepest conversations happen anyway. Jesus says, I want you to go out and imprint on other people with the love of God, with the kingdom of God. Make it real to them by imprinting on them. Now understand, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's gonna become a Christian. In fact, Jesus says explicitly in verse 10 that there are gonna be people who are not going to respond to the kingdom. But here's the thing. We're not gonna know ahead of time who that is anyway. Jesus says, just go love them. Go imprint, go make the kingdom real to people by loving them, being for them. Now, how does that happen? At, at the most basic level, it means just being available, just showing up, being willing to say, you know what, Instagram can wait, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. But Jesus does give us a lot of very practical instruction in this passage. Let me just pull out a few of the big ones for us. First, um, making the kingdom real to people, this is something that we do together. You notice Jesus sends them out two by two. And it's, it's not just one person. It's not just 12 people. It's 72 people. And then he tells them, pray that God uh, raises up other people to join you in this. We need lots of people to do this. This is not something that we do alone. And even more than that, you notice that um, here's one of the big points. We need so many people because we're all human beings. That means we're limited. We're finite. We, we don't have the ability to, to love people like this um, uh, infinitely. At, at best, we can really only do this in maybe a handful of other people's lives. But that's part of the beauty of the Lord's design. You know, we're, we're, we're human beings. That means we're all different. We have different stories, different personalities, different experiences. That means that even me, like, you know, I'm a pastor. It's supposed to be my, quote, job to go do ministry, to go love people and minister to the kingdom of God to people. But you know what? There's certain people I can't reach. You can. 
You have a story. In fact, especially according to God's providence, you have hurts and wounds and pains and brokenness in your life. You have a story, and God is especially good at using the hurts and the wounds and the stories of your lives in the lives of other people. There are certain people that you're able to reach those people when I can't or other people can't. And so this means being available to those handful of people that God may have called you into their life to go imprint on them because you've been specially gifted. Your story, your experiences, your hurts and your pains have made you uniquely situated, uniquely gifted to make the kingdom of God real to other people. So that's the first thing. Secondly, notice there's an urgency here. So in, um, in the passage, Jesus says that, um, that when you go out, he says, pray earnestly that God will send other people into the harvest. Literally, he says, beg God to send other people into the harvest. There's an urgency here. Notice he also tells them that when you're going along the road, don't stop to talk to other people. Now, you know, Jesus is not saying be antisocial, but he is saying, look, time is short. That, you know, there are souls that are hanging in the balance here. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't put this off until tomorrow. They may not be here tomorrow. Time is short. There's an urgency. But it's also an urgency that's um, it's fueled by compassion. So you notice a little later in the passage, Jesus is pronouncing woe. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Now that word woe, Understand, yes, it, it, it's a word uh, that is expressing that, that these people are, are coming under judgment because they've rejected the kingdom of God. But woe is not a word of anger or hostility. Woe is a word of lament or, or, or sadness, deep grief over the tragedy that someone is missing the kingdom of God. Jesus is heartbroken over this and we should be too. Okay, so first, we don't do this alone. You've been uniquely gifted to do this. Secondly, there's urgency fueled by compassion. Thirdly, will you notice that there's gentle courage? This mission requires gentle courage. If you look, it says, um, Jesus says, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. In other words, he's saying, this is going to be dangerous, that when you go out to do this, you should expect opposition. You should expect hostility, hatred, rejection. You should expect to be attacked. But notice that, um, that he doesn't say attack back. Attackers, those who are attacked should never become attackers. You're going out as lambs in the midst of wolves, but lambs should never become wolves. Lambs should stay lambs. And, and that's, I think, really um, potent for us in our culture today because social media especially has a tendency to turn us into wolves, to turn us into attackers. Jesus says, those who go out serving me should, should always remain lambs. Lambs should never become wolves. They're, they're, and that's gonna require courage because we have to trust that the Lord is gonna protect us instead of fighting for ourselves out there in the world. So we don't do it alone. We do it with others. There's a, an urgency fueled by compassion. There's a gentle courage. But lastly, we've been talking a lot about loving people, but, but let's not miss the reality that Jesus says this is not just deeds, it's also words. That there's a proclamation of the gospel. There's an actual message with content, and the, and the message is about Jesus. That, that the healing and the restoration of the world, the kingdom of God, is only available in and through Jesus and I recognize that is an inherently offensive message in our culture. So people will frequently hear 
uh, people will frequently say, look, how can you say that Jesus is the only way to God? Before I became a Christian, you know, I was 30 years old when I became a Christian. Uh, My biggest beef with Christianity was the exclusivity of Christianity. How can people say Jesus is the only way to God? It just sounds so narrow, so exclusive. But, um, you know, we talk about this a lot here, so I'm not going to go in depth into this today. Um, But at the very least, we can say this, you know, every single person in the world has a view of ultimate reality, including spiritual reality. Okay, And and every single one of of those views is going to be exclusive one way or another. So frequently people will say things like, look, all religions teach the same thing. We should never tell other people what to believe. We say that a lot. We hear that a lot. Can we slow down and kind of investigate that statement? First, when we say, or if we say, no one should ever tell others what to believe, you understand we just did what we said nobody else should do. We just told other people what to believe. Everybody has a view of ultimate reality and we all advocate for that reality. That's what we do. That's what Facebook is. That's what Twitter is. We're advocating for our view of reality. Can we just be honest about that? But secondly, if we say all religions teach the same thing, that sounds very inclusive, but it's really just an exclusive truth claim um, smuggled inside of tolerant, inclusive language. Because to say all religions teach the same thing is basically just a way of saying, look, my view of ultimate spiritual and religious reality is the true view, and you religious people should abandon your view and adopt mine. That is still an exclusive view of spiritual and religious truth. Friends, loving people with the gospel, making the kingdom real to other people, is more than proclaiming the truth of the gospel, but it is not less. It's both. And that's what Jesus is showing us. You know, conservative fundamentalist churches have a tendency to to be really good at focusing on proclaiming the truth of the gospel. But then they tend to shy away from things like social action or loving and caring for people. On the other hand, progressive churches do a really good job of loving people, of social action, of caring for people, but they have a tendency to shy away from proclaiming the truth of the gospel, especially proclaiming the, the truth of the sacrificial death and physical resurrection of Jesus as the only way to the kingdom. Jesus is saying we need both deeds and words. And that leads to our last point. We've seen Jesus shows us the mission of the kingdom. Uh, We've just talked about the experience of the kingdom. But lastly, Jesus shows us the joy of the kingdom. And this is what we most need. Because here's the danger, and there is a danger here. And the danger is not that serving Jesus in his mission means that we're going to be attacked. That's the least of the dangers. The big danger, we see it at the very end of the passage in verse 17. Uh, It says that the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, what is the focus of their joy? It's not, Lord, people's lives were changed. Lord, people were experiencing healing and renewal. No, the focus is us. They say the demons are subject to us. It's really more about power and performance and success and getting a sense of self-importance in their lives. Now, what does Jesus say? Well, first he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Um, What he's saying is, yes, of course the demons are going to be subject to you because my gospel, my kingdom has power over all evil. But then he says, nonetheless, 
Do not rejoice that, your, uh, that the demons are subject to you. In other words, he's saying, be careful. He's saying, don't let your success or your performance be the, the way that you get uh, joy in your life. You know, this is actually a real-time example of what Jesus was talking about in last week's passage. He's saying, don't let success or performance be the way that you get a sense of self or identity. Don't let it be the way that you get a, a sense of being somebody. You know, Martin Luther King always used to talk about uh, the, the need in every human being to be somebody, that we all need a sense of worth and value and dignity. Jesus is saying, don't let your success or performance be the way that you get a sense of somebodyness in this world. Because if you do, if your performance, even if it's good things like loving people or caring for people or speaking truth, we call that being prophetic, um, that if your performance is, is the way that you get a sense of somebodyness, it's not really about other people, it's about you. It's not about serving people. It's certainly not about God. It's really about you and your need to be somebody. You know, people criticize religious people, especially Christians, for being self-righteous and judgmental and angry and hostile and hypocritical, and rightly so a lot of the time. Because if your joy and security in this life is wrapped up in, in your success, in your performance, if it's wrapped up in how well you're doing, then of course it's going to produce those things in you. If you're doing well, it's going to produce pride and superiority and judgmentalness in your life. But if you're not doing so well, things go cattywampus inside of you. You feel horrible about yourself. Your life is a mess. Everything's askew. Jesus is saying that that the only way for you to, to engage the mission of the kingdom, the only way you can do ministry in my name without it making you a self-righteous jerk is if you get a new source of joy in your life. And so he says, do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. Now, what does that mean? You know, to have a name is to be somebody, right? Right? To have a name, it means to be somebody. Now, especially in the ancient world, they had this idea that in the judgment, um, books would be opened. And if you lived a really good life, then your name would be written in the book. It, it all depended on your performance. But here Jesus says, your names are already written. In other words, he's saying that your somebodyness in this world, it, it doesn't depend, it's, that's not something that you achieve through your performance. It's something that is bestowed upon you through my performance. How? I don't know if you noticed this, um, a little earlier in the passage, Jesus tells his, um, his missionaries, he says that um, when people reject you, it's really me they're rejecting. In other words, Jesus is saying that, that that you are so identified with me that whatever happens to me happens to you and whatever happens to you happens to me. Jesus identifies with people. He identifies with them so much. In fact, that's exactly what happened on the cross. Jesus identifies with us so that we could identify with him because who is Jesus? Jesus has the name above all names. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the ultimate somebody. And yet on the cross, Jesus lost his name. He was rejected, not just by human beings, but by Father God. Jesus, his name was erased. You know, there's a story in Exodus 32 about the Israelites and how they rejected God and started worshiping a, a golden calf that they had made. And God 
Um, when he finds out about this, it's like the ultimate betrayal after everything God has done for them, rescuing them out of slavery in Egypt, for them to reject him like this and worship uh, an image like that. God is getting ready to reject Israel, but Moses goes to God and he says, God, please forgive them, but if not, blot my name out of your book. Moses loves his people so much that he is willing to have his name blotted out of God's book so that the people's name could be written in. Friends, don't you know that Jesus is the ultimate Moses? His name was erased. His name was blotted out so that our names could be written in. He identifies with us. He got the rejection that we deserve for all of our self-centered motivations so that he could give us the name, his name, the name above all names so that he could give us the ultimate somebody-ness. Friends, the more you gaze upon Jesus doing that for you on the cross, the more that becomes real to you. You know what's happening? He's imprinting on you. He's imprinting you with his love, imprinting you with his name, with that somebodiness, the more that happens to you, the more that becomes real to you, the more you are able to, to move out into the world and begin making that real to other people. We do that by embracing our stories and our wounds because we know that God can use those in the lives of others. It, that gives you an urgency that's fueled by compassion, but it also gives you a gentleness that's empowered by courage It it makes you someone who's able to speak truth, but also to love people really, really well by imprinting them with the life-changing, name-bestowing love that has already been imprinted on you through Jesus Christ. The more that becomes real to you, the more you're able to make it real to others. Has it become real to you? Look at Jesus on the cross imprinting you like that. You'll be able to imprint on others. Let's pray.